welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls Podcast, the only podcast where both hosts are wild and every game is Trump. I'm your host tonight, Mr. Mark Teske, along with somebody new. Hey, Mr. Sobi Youssef. Sobi, say hello to everybody. Hello, everybody. I'm Sobi Youssef. I'll be joining Mark today and hopefully more in the future. Indeed, indeed. And before we get too far into this one, uh, Jake is still a beloved gaming mogul. Jake's still around. Uh, Jake's just got a lot of this stuff going on in his life. He, he's got a new job. Uh, he's got a newfound love of golf and uh, lots of other things going on this summer. So that we can keep things going. Sobi and I kind of became friends a couple years ago. And uh, first by exchanging junky games with each other. You know, you bought my junk and I bought your junk. And I think we traded junk back and forth a couple times. And then uh, eventually we ended up in the same game group. Yeah, and I don't think we even played any of those junkie games. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it was just, it was more like every time I listed a game, the first message I got was from you and just go, oh, I'll buy the cost from you. I was like, oh, cool. Yeah. Wait, you got a copy of Ark Nova? Cool. And not to say they're, these are junkie games, right? We, we haven't even played them, but although uh, Indonesia is high on our list. Yes. My copy of Indonesia did come from Sobi. Of course, I still haven't played it since I bought it from you. <laughs> but I'm going to fix that in two weeks. Yes, 100%. We're playing it at muster. So, yep, <laughs> will happen. Before we get into our game of verses, though, Sobi, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. So, uh, I have been playing board games, modern board games, that is, for probably the past eight years. I want to say uh, I've really gotten into games after playing uh, Catan. <laughs> Uh, a ton. My goodness, I played that game so much. I got into Pandemic, got into some of the other basic games, right? And then eventually it just um, went off the rails from there. I got into, you know, more heavyweight games, thematic games, war games, historical, all those things. And, uh, you know, haven't really looked back. So I have a board game collection, about 200. A big chunk of those are heavy Euros, econ games, and then lots of war games, of course, as well. More personally about me, I am a aerospace engineer by education. I work as a medical device uh, program manager. So that's kind of what I do for a living. So try to unwind from that, play, play uh, board games in my free time, and also dabble in design a little bit too. So I don't have any published designs yet, but i um, really hoping to do so within the next couple of years. So he's told me about a number of his games that he's working on, and uh, I, I, I'm excited to see them actually turn into something. They sound like really cool ideas. Thanks. Yeah. Um, hopefully I can make one of these projects actually happen. There's just, there's so many of them right now, but uh, I love every single one of them. Well, and uh, for those of you that were always sitting back thinking, geez, I wish the gaming moguls would talk a little bit more about war games. Cause you know, Jake and I historically never did. So uh, if that's your thing, buckle up fellow listeners. Cause uh, Sobi will definitely bring that aspect into things. So it'll be a fun change of pace. Thanks. Looking forward to it. We often bring our hosts in with a little game of verses where we give you a this versus that. Some of them, like, I think I already know you well enough. I could answer these pretty much straight out of the gate, but we're going to hit you with them anyway. So sure. first question, when it comes to a game, Sobi, what's more important to you, the theme or the mechanics? So I think this is uh, cheating because I definitely say theme. But from my perspective, the reason why a thematic game is so good is because it's represented by its mechanics which maybe we'll talk a little bit more later. It's a fantastic answer. <laughs> we might talk about that later. <laughs> Long games versus short games. I want to say most of my gaming is in the short realm. So games that I'd say are between one and let's say three hours. 
maybe that's a weird definition of short game because I play a lot of war games and historical games. Um, I consider a long game to be in the four plus hour range, I suppose. So I'd say short games are what I'm interested in. Now, if you want to go a step further, I do play a lot of um, 30 minute, sub 30 minute games with my wife and my my oldest uh, son. So so I'd say that represents the majority of my games, but I probably like that one to three hour sweet spot the most. Awesome answer. Question three. So in gaming, there's a concept of a 10 by 10 where you play 10 games 10 times. I've always kind of thought that's nonsense. I don't want to play a game 10 times in a year. So I started the 100 by one and the 50 by two, where I play 100 games one time and 50 games two times. Sobi, what would you rather do? Play 20 games five times or five games 20 times? I definitely have to go 20 by five here. I think uh, there are just so many games on my shelf that I haven't played, and I just love to explore the mechanisms in every single one of them. Uh, 5 by 20 would just take a bit too much of my time, my limited free time, by the way, with uh, with tons of uh, little kids running around. So 20 by 5, definitely. Heard. You know, I have a hard time finding five games I'd want to play 20 times. Right. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> There's a few. Yep. Euro versus Ameritrash versus question mark. So I think this is a common debate as to what exactly is Ameritrash. Uh, so I'd, I'd say an Ameritrash game is uh, more on that dungeon crawler end of the spectrum where... Highly chance dependent. Highly chance dependent. Okay. I guess if you can mitigate the chance, that's great. I'd say overall Euro probably appeals to me a little more between these two. But I really like uh, thematic historical games and you know those do have dice in them. So, you know, you could say that those are Ameritrash, although I'd fight you. (laughs) (laughs) Fog of war and all that. Yeah. Cool. Competitive versus co-op. Competitive. Yeah, I definitely, uh, <laughs> I definitely know that about you. That you're out for blood when you play. <laughs> you know, co- co-op. I'm I'm not going to trash co-op games here completely. There are some that I love, like uh, Gloomhaven. I think is just phenomenal. Um, the way it does co-op with the hidden information, uh, just brilliant design. And I think more co-op games can benefit from doing things like that that limit table commander behavior. Sure. All right. Now we're going to get even more contentious here. cubes versus minis cubes (laughs) (laughs) sorry what if those cubes were shaped like little trains what do you think about that i'm okay with that ah i I like the wooden pieces in general (laughs) fancy wooden pieces sign me up half of our viewers just screamed (laughs) (laughs) i love it is that uh is that a reference to uh uh the age of steam uh trains oh absolutely okay all yep, right. yep, yep, but that's my metagame, so yep. <laughs> play with the little trains and piss everybody off so you have a better chance of winning. <laughs> How about victory by conquest versus victory points? This is a really interesting debate in historical game design, I think, because, um, you know, what is a victory point, right? Like, what does victory mean in your game? And I think uh, if the victory points actually mean something, that's fine for me. But otherwise, it should just be something like money, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which that's why I'm drawn to econ games a lot. Uh, victory by conquest, absolutely. I think that's a legitimate, uh, you know, method to win in in a lot of games as well. So it really depends on what victory is for your theme. Sure. Other than just some random representation, what is it? I think prestige is like the most generic version of victory right. point there ever is. <laughs> How much yep. prestige do you have? I'm not a point salad fan, so. If that's the question, I'm going to have to go victory by conquest. <laughs> or we could just go wigs, but maybe we'll talk about that one later, too. Yeah. 
So this is a storage question, and I already know the answer to this one because I'm looking at our live feed camera, which, dear listeners, you cannot see. Do you store your games vertically or horizontally? There is only one right answer here, by the way. So I I actually store them in a you know normally in a combination of both. So you can see on my bookshelf here, I have a lot that are vertical, but I have a Calyx uh, under my my stairwell here that I store them uh, sideways, uh, vertically, I guess, and then some horizontally on the top, and then another one vertical in the front. So you have to optimize the Calyx space. Yeah, that's that's acceptable. Yeah, I can get way more games in my closet by storing them vertically than I can by horizontally. And just the games get the crap beaten out of them when you store them horizontally. Yeah, I think the the answer is space optimization. That's that's the answer. Sleeved cards versus raw. Jeez, oh, I I don't know if I have a lot of time to sleeve all my cards. Like I said, I I have a lot going on in my free time, but I do enjoy when I get a sleeved game. Right, like if I buy a used game and it's sleeved, it's like, oh man, this is a luxury. So, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's probably you know the the bigger question there is how precious do you hold your games? Right, I mean, is it okay if your games take a little wear and tear, or do they have to be handled with uh, white gloves? So I really love to to play my games, right, but. If I play something once and I don't quite enjoy it, I'm going to sell it. And usually just playing something once isn't going to absolutely destroy the cards if they're decent quality. So I'm okay trying a game out without sleeving it. Absolutely. Now, the real question everybody wants to know, in the Church of Tom Lehman, race for the galaxy versus roll for the galaxy? Uh, I think I have to go with race. I really love race for the galaxy. Roll for the galaxy is a great game as well, but uh, I think race is just the ultimate engine building game. But you can't go deaf playing Race for the Galaxy. (laughs) 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 Oh, man. Yeah, I I, I actually played Race or Roll for the Galaxy at work one time in a conference room. Uh, We ordered some pizza and we, you know, we played uh, board games at lunch one time. And yes, it was freaking loud, man. (laughs) (laughs) Because you can't just calmly pour the dice out of that cup. You got to give them at the full rattle tattle. Right. We definitely needed a private conference room for that. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Now for the real thumbprint. The concept of Mount Rushmore of designers, uh, the four designers that you think would represent kind of your favorite tastes in gaming, who would be on your Mount Rushmore of designers? So I will, I guess I'll do one uh, thematic or historical designer and then one non-historical, I guess, and more mechanics-based. So first one I'm going to have to say is Jeff Engelstein. So uh, his game, The Expanse, uh, based on the popular TV show and or books and or what have you, it's just a phenomenal game. I, I absolutely love The Expanse. I think it's a great streamlined version of the GMT coin system crossed over with uh, the uh, the game Twilight Struggle and its, uh, you know, its siblings. And I think uh, Jeff did just a phenomenal job designing that game. So I'd have to say Jeff Engelstein just for that alone. But uh, he also did uh, Versailles 1919, which is just a, another wonderful example of, uh, of Jeff's thematic and historical work. So great designer. I'd say that's, that's going to be one of them. And if I'm not mistaken, I think the Expanse is probably the first game you beat me at. Yes. First of many. <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We played, uh, we definitely played your uh, premium deluxified version, right? With, uh, with all the spaceships. <laughs> that was super cool. I need to, I need to do that to mine as well. Yeah. I resin 3d printed all the spaceships directly for it rather than cubes. That game is, it's hilarious. I've only had one game where I've had a three-way tie and a two-way tie like happen back to back. Oh, weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Cool. Okay, who's number two on the list? 
Next one, I think, uh, has to be Dr. Kinesia, the good doctor, Reiner Kinesia. I just think he is the master of the mechanism, really. Sure. I mean, he can write a mechanism on a bar napkin and be like, hey, go print this, buddy. And <laughs> the guy's got a game that just printed 30,000 copies. It's just uh, next level design work that, that comes out of, out of Kinesia's brain. And so many of his games are just phenomenal there's a lot of stinkers in there too but i know that he's done a lot of different stuff right and there's a, a huge variety in the games that he's produced what are some of your favorite niches of his games or what are your favorite types of his games or, or even favorite games uh probably my number one favorite is modern art i think it's just a classic game i mean the auctions just the competition the, the stabbing i mean it's just a wonderful game i think uh, modern art definitely uh, right now, though, and based on your recommendation, actually, Blue Lagoon is, I think, like his coolest thing he's done in a long time. Like, that's just such a fun game. It's just got the right amounts of stab and the right amounts of, you know, um, working like a network, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to um, actually have some more advanced strategy. But uh, just the, the area enclosure of that game, it's just so brutal. And I just love it. Awesome. All right. Number three on your Mount Rushmore. So I'm going to go back to another more thematic designer, and I'd say uh, I have to put Volko Runke on here. First of all, Volko has been a wonderful mentor and a, just a, a great, great person in general to, to talk with um, about game design, you know, and learning about that. But also Volko is definitely like one of the real like founding fathers, uh, and this is Mount Rushmore, right? <laughs> yep. So, <laughs> right on point. One, yeah. One of the founding fathers of like modern war game design. And I say modern war game design right? Not just war game design, because, you know, he really modified the card driven mechanisms that, uh, you know, Mark Herman initially designed, and then also created uh, several new systems that uh, the, the publisher GMT is well known for and makes, you know, makes a lot of copies and money on, right? Uh, the coin series and then the Levy and campaign series. So definitely Volko Runke has to be on here. Awesome. And then uh, number four, Number four is going to be the Splatter Duo. So it's kind of a weird Siamese twin, like uh, Mount Rushmore person, but it, it's two yeah. people, but <laughs> but they but they uh, um, are going to be on one bust. So that's going to be uh, the Splatter folks. Uh, I don't know how to say their names properly, but Yeroen, uh, you know how to say them? It is, yes. Yeroen uh, Druman and Yuris Versinga. Versinga, okay. Man, you, you're really good at that language. I can't speak it. Yeroen <laughs> Yuris. Well, sorry, sorry, guys, for if you hear that, <laughs> but, but Mark did you right. So Splatter is one of my favorite publishers and I love their designs. They're, uh, they can be a little fiddly at times, I guess you, you would call it that, but uh, usually they're very rewarding and strategically deep. So the great Zimbabwe, that's, I have to mention it, just a phenomenal game. I know you're not a huge fan, Mark, but I love TGZ. All good. We all have our favorites out of that group and certainly we can agree to disagree on which ones the best ones are for sure. I'd go Indonesia, but I, I know a lot of people who love the great Zimbabwe. And then finally, our last question here in the little get to know you segment. What would you say are your three overall favorite games? What were the oh three boy. games you, you, you'd take to the desert island and be happy playing the rest of your life? Oh my goodness. This is such a hard question. <laughs> and they got to be tip of your tongue, man. They, they're not your favorite if they don't come off the tip of your tongue. Okay. Well, number one is going to be Watergate. I absolutely adore Watergate. It's just a quick play. I don't know if it's appropriate for Desert Island, to be honest, unless I have to teach someone how to play it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's another riff on the Expanse and Twilight Struggle mechanism. 
Yeah, Watergate is just a, a, a great streamlined, short uh, two-player experience, and it's very thematic. I, I have to go with uh, Watergate for, for one of those. Notice that I didn't put uh, Matthias Kramer on my Mount Rushmore, but um, I, I do love this game. The next one, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, I think, but uh, Pax Renaissance. I I adore Pax Renaissance. I might not be a big fan of some of the uh, ideas uh, presented <laughs> in the uh, the leaflet within the box, but uh, uh, that said, I feel like every time I play that game, there's just a phenomenal merit narrative that uh, I'm just super interested in learning more about as I you know play these cards and definitely Pax Renaissance. It's a wonder box, uh, you know, that that you could bring to an island and play for a long time. Absolutely. Uh, number three, I, I'm going to have to go with a, um, a I, I think I have to go with the GMT coin series uh, and picking my favorite from that is going to be Fire in the Lake. So <laughs> Fire in the Lake by Valko Runke and Mark Herman. Uh, it's a game about uh, Vietnam and sure. uh, it takes the uh, the initial uh, system that Valko created about counterinsurgency and it actually applies it to like a hot zone conflict. There was an insurgency going on in, in the jungles, um, but also there was a, a war, like a, an actual war going on at the same time. So kind of unique for the system and uh, very thematic. Definitely feels like uh, you're learning about the conflict um, as it was supposed to be taught. Well, cool. Well, one of the things we're going to do is uh, we're going to initiate you into the typical rituals of being a gaming mogul. And the typical first ritual we always do in every episode is what we've been playing. And what's cool about this is since you've been a member of my normal Wednesday night game group, we've played a lot of the same games, actually. We've got a bunch of stuff to talk about and kind of excited about it because we've got a bunch of stuff that's fairly new to us to talk about that we've never talked about before. So I want to start out with a game that's been on my bucket list of games to acquire for a long time. And I would have acquired it a long time ago if it was acquirable. Problem is, it wasn't acquirable. I've really taken a taste to finding classic old games that are out of print that still have retained the te- still have made the test of time and are still awesome games and seeking those out rather than buying four or five forgettable brand new games. And that game is actually the Friedman Freeze classic Fresh Fish. Our friend Jerry decided to get a little group buy together and uh, get a bunch of copies imported from Spain for a bunch of us. Uh, since it's a pretty language independent game and for whatever reason, they weren't all sold out in Spain. So uh, I know you have a copy and I have a copy and Jerry has a copy and a couple other people have copies of the Spanish Una Dia El Mercado. <laughs> Un Dia en El Mercado. Yeah. <laughs> Day at the Market. So Fresh Fish, basically completely an abstract game that is, I don't know, Soby, how would you even describe Fresh Fish? It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Yet it was simultaneously cooler and more interesting. I don't know what I thought it was going to be, but it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. It is weird as hell, man. I I don't <laughs> I really don't know how to how to talk about even talk about this game. It is it's like a really strange abstract puzzle with multiple dimensions of um of like enclosure that you have to think in, right? Y- yeah. I, hmm. It's almost like a there is kind of a weird area control, but it's more like area denial. Right. Like you're yeah. trying to force people to take the longest possible path to get to their truck. And the scoring is based on having the shortest possible path to get to your truck. So if you can lay paths that give you exclusive pathways to your truck and block other people, then you force them to score more points than you. Yeah, um, exactly. 
And the mechanism to do that is you actually auction off pieces every turn. So you've got something that's an abstract with auctions, with heavy doses of just straight up animosity. And now you've got a very fun interactive game. Yeah, it makes me think of, um, I want to say Northern Pacific quite a bit. And I, I know this might sound a little weird, but hmm. you have these uh, these routes that you're trying to steer steer away from some players, but move them toward others. And there's some shared incentive, but it's not all shared incentive, right? Um, right. So it has a little bit of that feel to it. It's definitely heavier, though. You know, it's it's a huge brain burner comparatively. So I, yeah, you're, you're right. I mean... Just that combination of mechanisms, like having an auction and then having this extreme spatial puzzle, it's a it's a really enjoyable game. If you taught this game to me and said, guess who the designer is, would you guess Friedman Freeze? I wouldn't. No, definitely not. I would have guessed I would have guessed Reiner Knizia, to be quite honest with you. It has almost a like a taste of raw crossed with. I don't know, Tigris and Euphrates or something weird like that. I mean, it's it feels so much more like a Knizia game than it does a Friedman Freeze game. You're right. It feels like a Kinesia game that was rejected by the publisher. <laughs> <laughs> For just being weird. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because if Kinesia actually did publish it, I don't think he would get rejected with this one. But the other thing, too, is that there's a lot of controversy around what the cur- air quotes correct rule system system is. You know, we have the version two of the rules, which has a really convoluted way of determining, like, how paths automatically fill in and grow. Yes, that is extremely challenging to, to suss in, the, in your first play. And even in your second play and even in your third play, I feel like every time I, I work on that mechanism, I forget what I'm doing. So are you playing with the uh, the dads on a map vetted rules from Jerry? Or are you playing with the rules in, in the book as printed? Uh, the, the vetted rules, the same rule set that you were using. Okay, yeah, yeah. 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 So seek out the, uh, you know, kind of the approved vetted rules by a lot of the experts. Those are actually better than the ones in the box. And that's the only way I've played so far. And uh, yeah, it certainly seemed to be fun that way. So I looked at the, you know, the rules as printed and it seemed a lot weirder. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will play this one almost any time I am looking to play like a 60 minute filler or something. It's definitely meaty. My 13 year old enjoyed it. Um, he did get a lot of analysis paralysis, which, you know, happens to teenagers, I think, but Mm -hmm. he, he also enjoyed it. Yeah. I've got a son that'll take 15 minute turns in town center. So (laughs) maybe I shouldn't teach this one to him. (laughs) (laughs) This one is AP overload. I, I absolutely must say if you are prone to AP, um, this one will drive you bananas. Yeah, so that's uh, that's Friedman Freeze's Fresh Fish. Definitely recommended. I think you would you'd highly recommend it. Correct? Oh, absolutely. Super fun game. Pretty hard to find. Will they ever reprint it? I have absolutely no idea. You can still import one from Spain, to the best of my knowledge, and order several of them to defray some of the shipping costs. But definitely worth the effort to acquire. And we're gonna give this a quick mogul scale rating of two D. Pretty simple rules and really a bit of a brain burner. Yeah, I agree. I think 2D is uh, is the right score here. It's uh, not quite go, but approaching that standard. <laughs> yep. One of the things that confused me about you, Sobi, early on was that I knew you liked heavy games. I knew you liked economic games. Every time I brought up 18xx to you, you kind of went, eh. <laughs> oh, it's great. We played this and you'd kind of go, eh. So what was your reticence about 18xx, Sobi? Well, I played it a few times, actually. I played 1846 and 18 Chesapeake. I played 18 Chesapeake a couple times. And I 
I don't know. I, I feel like uh, it just didn't grab me. It felt very, you know, pr- uh, scripted, like each mm-hmm. of the plays. And I just felt like, you know, 1846 was all about like memorizing the best tiles and just putting the best tiles wherever. And I, that's probably a generalization. I'm sure 1846 is a much, <laughs> much more uh, strategic <laughs> game than that. <laughs> but then uh, 18 Chesapeake, uh, I played that afterward and I don't know, that just felt like I was, you know, buying some stocks and selling them and, you know, doing some, laying some track and it just, it kind of felt very procedural as well. So after playing those two games, I was kind of not really interested in exploring the system much. And uh, that's why when we played 1849, I was pretty surprised. (laughs) (laughs) So he he had expressed these concerns to me and I just said, okay, you know, that's fair. You know, when you play a full capitalization game like 18 Chesapeake, You know, it is kind of a race to be able to start that second company. And there are some templated plays that happen in any full cap game. Now, to execute those perfectly, um, there's a lot of, you know, incremental improvements that you can make from play to play. And dollar here, a dollar there earlier in the game has big benefits later in the game because it's literally a lot of those are time value of money over the course of the game. Little money early on turns into a lot of money later on. But you know, I can certainly see where there was a there, there are less levers to pull in those games. So um, knowing that you like things that are have a little more thematic, I started thinking along what games have a little more chrome to them and a little more story around them. And kind of the two that came to mind up front were 1880. Sure. Let's take a guy that doesn't really know if he likes 18xx and expose him to an eight hour long six person game of 1880. That didn't seem like a great idea. Let's try something a little smaller. And uh, we introduced 1849 to you a couple games ago. So 1849 is just to recap. It's the game of Sicilian railways. It's a very dirt poor game where you're always scrabbling for money. Terrain costs are gnarly. Uh, There's narrow gauge track. It's a incremental capitalization game. And of course, it's got the fun little uh, crummy thing about the volcano going off mid game and destroying one of the cities. So you're on about game five now of it. I know we're playing 18xx.games right now. Yeah, I think uh, I think game four. So yeah, I would definitely want to keep playing this game. <laughs> <laughs> so what what have been your impressions so far? It's I've, I've probably played it twenty times. I love hearing people's kind of you know hearing it through people's new eyes. It just seems like there is so much risk to everything you do in this game, like. You know, any any kind of uh, thing that you think might be an interesting lever to pull, it could be complete disaster. <laughs> and I just, <laughs> I just really, and it's like that most of the time for me since I'm learning, but I really enjoy that. I like pulling all these different levers and, you know, trying to make the system completely crash. And, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's just been exciting to do. It also made me realize how much of a chess match 18xx really is. Not so much as like this heavy Euro type game, right? Where there's all these like moving pieces that are interlocked and, you know, you're trying to manage all these things. It's really um, a game where there are good moves that you need to know, right? You need to know how to, how to do these good moves and, you know, manipulate the stock value, for example, charts and where the tokens are, right? You need to, you need to be able to, to know exactly where that is, because if you don't, then your friend Jerry completely messes up your game. <laughs> was that our first? You were so angry in our first game about how he manipulated. He sold down a bunch of stuff to manipulate the turn order of the stock market so he could start IFT. I think one of the one of the good companies later on. And you were just like, "Wait, what are you doing? What?" It's like, "What this, the f this are you doing, dumb. dude?" <laughs> 
this is the dumbest game ever if you can do that. And then we, we finally, we had a long discussion about how much effort and thought it puts in there to correctly do that. And then all of a sudden I could kind of see the light bulb in your head go off and go, oh, that is pretty cool. One of the truisms about a lot of good 18xx games is that every little corner of the game can be weaponized and trying to figure out how to do that is, is one of the fun challenges of playing it. Yeah, that, that was the exact moment that I kind of, the light, like you said, the light bulb went off and I learned that 18xx was much more of a chess match than it was anything else. Like I said, we're, we're several games in right now. Um, I know during our upcoming gaming weekend, the Minnesota, the first Minnesota muster, we're hoping to get in a game of 1880 finally and, you know, continue your education. Yeah, I'm excited to try that as well. Hopefully uh, it's not eight hours, but I'm in. I'm in for the, I'm into I'm into to probably lose, but I'm in. <laughs> so that's 1849 uh, published by All Aboard Games. And uh, I think we rate previously rated that as a 4D on the mogul scale. The next game I've got, Sobi, that I haven't actually played with you. So one of the funny things we've been doing lately is we've had a little bit of a tour day Rosenberg. We've kind of been playing our way down the Rosenberg shelf and um, we've played Lahav, we've played Aura and Labora. I don't think what else we've played in that pile of stuff. But I've had the opportunity recently to play Orienenberger Canal. The new two-player only, well, solo or two-player only, game by Reiner Knizia that just arrived via Kickstarter a couple weeks ago. Sobi, have you seen this game at all or know anything about it? I saw it sitting on your stack of games, and uh, I saw it go to Kickstarter by Spielworks, I believe. So mm-hmm. I was super interested, but I ultimately didn't back because it was a Rosenberg game, and I figured I could find it in retail eventually, right? Stupid ha, ha, me. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> Jokes on you. <laughs> it does look great, and I, you know, I know that many have said that there's some Glass Road adjacent mechanisms in it, and I'm sure you're gonna mention that. But I loved Gra- Glass Road. I, you know, and so hearing that, I'd love to give this this one a shot for sure. So the theme with Oranienburger Canal is that it's based on Oranienburger, Oranienburg. There we go, Oranienburg, an industrial area where they ran a bunch of canals in there to get shipping around all the different factories that are in place and businesses that are in this area. And so you're trying to recreate that. You're trying to build industries on a grid and you're trying to build the connectivity pathways between those. And you're trying to build canals and you're trying to build railways and paths and roads. And all of these buildings that you put out there are enabled by building a path completely around them. So once you complete a path around them, whatever the special ability of that building is triggered a lot of those have are only triggered if you have a certain number of canals around it or a certain number if you have two canals and two roads it'll trigger and do its thing it'll also only the second time you can trigger it is if you build a bridge over a canal a completed canal when you have your second completed bridge to that building it'll trigger again so that special ability of that building literally will only happen two times throughout the entire game there's markets out there for those buildings. It's actually an uh, action selection mechanism where you've got this kind of tower of big discs that you set the tower down on the thing you want to do. Then the next person grabs the tower and leaves one behind and sets it on there. And that's how the action selection mechanism works out. Every time you throw out a few more new buildings and you're both trying to build up your industrial zone. As you mentioned, it has the resource wheel from both Glass Road and Aura and Labora with a little bit of a twist. In Glass Road, it automatically spring loads. So If you convert a bunch of resources into something else, it'll automatically do that and it'll spring forward. It does not automatically move an Oranienberger Canal. You actually have to spend money to do that. And money is victory points. So basically, you have to make the decision, do I want to trade victory points to make some steel, for example? 
And that's just a neat lever that you can do. And you can, you can actually do that at any time as a free action. You actually do get one free click at the end of the round. So it does advance slowly on its own. But if you want to like spend extra resources to amp up your production, you can do that. Holy crap, is this game crunchy? I like two game Glass Road. I'm like, okay, it's good. It's a riff on Glass Road. Cool. Love Glass Road. Yeah, this is way heavier than Glass Road. <laughs> yeah, Glass Road was pretty, it was a pretty light game, I'd say. Well, that's, that's good to hear. It seems like, uh, you know, there's a little bit of extra depth to it. And furthermore, the base game comes with an A deck and a B deck. In each game, you pick either the A or the B, and then you separate that out into like, I don't know, red, blue, and green cards or something like that. And then there's a certain number of cards that go out. So basically, in any given game, you're only using maybe a third to a half of like, if you're playing with the A deck, you're using maybe a third of the A cards and the rest of them sit in the deck. So you have all of the rest of the A cards that you didn't use. You also have all the cards in the B deck that you didn't use. And by the way, if you got the expansions with it, you also got the C deck and the D deck. So there's a crazy amount of replayability in this game, too, given that, you know, you only play through probably 10% of the cards in any given game. I have heard some rumors that due to the popularity of this game, it's landed real well and it's gotten very good reviews that uh, there may actually be a reprint and a more consumer version available. So you might be in luck. I don't know. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, a U.S. publisher does pick it up if, if it's been that popular, because right now um, Spielworks is the only one that, that carries it. And obviously they're European based. So sure. Would you say the game is pretty interactive? Um. No, you know, it's interactive in terms of going for the same action spots. Mm -hmm. Certainly there are spots that you want and coins go on unused spots to sweeten the pie for next time around. So there, there is certainly some action order things there. There's interactivity around the building market because there's X number of buildings out, which kind of grow over the course of the game. And certainly there are some buildings that are stronger than others and fit better with your strategy. So there is some shared competition over those things, but what you do on your board has absolutely no effect on the other person okay, of any sort. So other than competing for what buildings you get and the action spots, uh, it's not the most interactive game in the world. Okay. That was one thing I loved about Glass Road was that, that card play mechanism. Sure. Uh, man, just playing the right card, that just felt so good. Yeah. No, it's, I would say it's about as interactive as something like Hallertau, which and much less luck-oriented. Okay. So that's Orianenberger Canal. I'm going to call this one a 2D on the mogul scale. And just, just as a reminder, you know, the one through five is what's the amount of rules involved with the game. And the A through E is how strategically complex is it? How big is the decision tree? So a 2D would be something that's pretty quick rules teach. And the D would mean that it has a lot of uh, decisions to make and a lot, of, a lot of complexity around the thought process. Selby, you've been playing a lot of stuff on rallythetroops.com, which I have to admit I've never been to. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've been playing lately? Yeah, so free free uh, PR for rallythetroops.com, but uh, phenomenal website. I love it. It's, um, it's like board game arena, but for really small niche games, I guess you could say. It's, uh, it's got rules enforcement. Um, you can run it on your, your cell phone. You know, really nice website overall. It's got a lot of uh, selection for just starting about a year ago, I want to say. But uh, two of the games I've been playing there a lot lately are Time of Crisis by GMT Games and Pax Pamir by uh, Whirligig. And both of those have pretty strong and fun uh, asynchronous implementations. So first off, Time of Crisis, you know, I'm going to try my hand at this mogul scale thing, and I'm going to say it's a 3B. Um, 
that might sound a little weird coming from a GMT game, but there is a healthy amount of dice rolling <laughs> in this game. And there is a healthy amount of uh, um, bad things that can happen to you for no reason. This is a game where we'd call it a beer and pretzels war game. So this is like a okay. you know, <laughs> the game where you can you know, reach for those pretzels, have a few, have a few beers and, you know, just have a good time chucking dice. It's very light, um, in terms of, uh, rule set, but there is some kind of historical chrome to it. It's about the, uh, Roman, uh, time of crisis during, I want to say the, uh, you know, around the 250 AD mark. 235 to 284 AD. <laughs> See, I'm an estimator. I was close. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but basically, it's just a time of uh, uh, instability in the Roman Empire. You each play as um, fully symmetric different areas of the empire, and you get to place like your initial uh, soldier and your militia, and then it's a deck builder from there. So you're trying to build a deck of these cards that allow you to, you know, place governors, military, um, get into battles, and you know, roll roll a bunch of dice. And that's really the the point of the game is just a have a lot of fun and uh, complain about how the game really messed with you at the end of the, at the end of the day. <laughs> right on. We've definitely talked about PAX Pamir and so forth. I've never had the pleasure of playing that with you. Uh, how was how the online implementation of that? Uh, it's really awesome for um, asynchronous play. I, I think uh, there's not a lot of stuff that interrupts gameplay, right? That makes mm-hmm. a, a, async kind of annoying. I say PAX Pamir is perfect for it. So if you were kind of on the fence and you want like a semi-casual experience, it's probably fine to at least give it a try. Implementation is great. And of course, you know, the game is a, is a fun game as well. I'm going to have to have you and uh, deal me in on a game of that one because I don't feel like I've ever, I've played it three or four times and I don't feel like I've ever actually played it. You know, it was all kind of people stumbling their way around it. And so I don't feel like I've ever had a, oh, that's how that game actually works experience. So... <laughs> you'll yeah. be in sometime absolutely i'd love to the uh you know the game kind of gets to next level i guess uh next level like uh backstabbery if you will yeah, sure <laughs> when when you're basically using your spies to kill your own people within your tableau so that you can switch to the other side at the last minute and and have a higher amount of influence in that suit so it's a uh, it's a fun game every time and um i'd say it is definitely more strategic than time of crisis Mm-hmm. So I think you mentioned it was a 3E on the mogul scale. That is what we had it at. From somebody that's played it more than I have, do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, I think it's probably a 3D. Okay. Comparing it to other PAX games, which, you know, we'll talk about one of my, my favorite ones later, but PAX Renaissance, that is, and that might be somewhere around a 4E. Sure. Four, four for the rule book alone. My goodness, that thing is a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been scared off by it a couple times. Yeah, you'd need a teacher for that game, 100%. <laughs> Pax Pamir, you don't really need a teacher. The rule book's great. You know, there's a lot of options, but uh, it's not as, I guess, strategic as Pax Renaissance. That's really all I can say about it. Very cool. And just looking at, uh, I pulled up Rally the Troops. It's actually not rallythetroops.com. It's rally-the-troops.com. So rally-the-troops.com. About like uh, what a dozen titles there or something like that. Anything from, anything from Time of Crisis and Pax Pamir to Rommel in the Desert, Nevsky, and Field of the Cloth of Gold. It's another one I should play with you. Oh, they have that on there now. That's awesome. That I'm game's right awesome. <laughs> we we yep. definitely got to get a get a game of that going. 
I'm in. Um, they also have uh, Andy and Abyss too, uh, GMT coin title by Balco Runke. Cool. So that is, uh, I guess that was a dual review of uh, <laughs> Time of Crisis, Pax Premier, <laughs> and RallyTheTroops.com. Last week when you came over, I had a really big box sitting out on my table, of which I took no small amount of mockery from you about. That would be the giant pimped edition of Castles of Burgundy, which finally arrived. I love the game, but I've always had the theory on it that it never, ever got played at my house because the original printing of it is so stinking ugly that nobody ever even gets remotely excited about playing it. They look at it, they just kind of go, eh. So I always hypothesize that if you made it kind of a modern looking game, that suddenly people would get a lot more excited about that one. And you know what? My experience is 100% back that one up so far. My my family, who was extremely lukewarm on playing it before, saw this and went, oh, that looks, that looks great. I totally want to play this more now. And uh, I've gotten a few reps in it. Soby, what'd you, what'd you think of that giant box? Uh, it was an incredible box, Mark, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful production. Absolutely beautiful production. Uh, definitely looks like it's worth uh, every penny of that 200 plus dollars on that that all-in pledge <laughs> we don't talk about that ah killing me thought we were homies <laughs> oh man they definitely did a good job taking a 20 dollar game and making it a 200 dollar game mark <laughs> it is absolutely amazing if you haven't seen one in person i mean every little detail is immaculate well, i shouldn't say every detail there's a couple of non-immaculate details in there but um Starting with the the plastic tiles are great. The little grid that you can put them into, the you know definitive version of all the different maps that you can have on for it, uh, the 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 miniatures for your little castles in there, the not dumb little velvet bags. They're actually like little leatherette satchels for pulling the tiles out of. I mean, just a fantastic production. The you know at the end of the day, it's still the game. Plus all the expansions in there, including a new variant of the game, new expansion that's the vineyard one which has like a sculpted 3D board that goes, multi-layer board that goes with it. And like two up tiles looks cool. Definitely want to try that sometime, but. All right. All right. I'll give it a try. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It's got a market too. So, right. Any game of the market's got to be great. Yeah. Anyway, just wanted to comment on that one since it was new today. We've talked about that game a lot on here. So I don't think we need to talk about that a lot, but just happy to finally have a, uh, you know, definitive edition of Castles of Burgundy that I can now call that quest complete. So, Subby, one of the first times you came to our game night, you came in with a box and it just happened to be a box that I had on my short list of games I wanted to play and did not own. What was that box, Soby? That was Carnegie by Xavier Georges. Xavier Georges is one of my favorite designers. Uh, he's the publisher of the He's the designer of the game Trois, which has long been one of my favorites. And I just, I really like everything the guy does. He did Ginkopolis though, for ah, sure. That's the other one I was thinking of. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he did Ginkopolis. He did Black Angel. Yeah, we, we won't hold him responsible for that one, but <laughs> that was not my favorite. Just love everything he does. So when he came out with Carnegie, I was very excited to try it. And why don't you tell us a little bit about Carnegie, Sobe? Carnegie is obviously about uh, Andrew Carnegie. So it's about the industrial period in the United States in the mid 1800s. So building out the transportation network. Um, but then, of course, with the, the aspect of Carnegie's life that's very well known is uh, his being a benefactor and a philanthropist. So basically, victory is, is kind of determined by how much of this philanthropy in, in the game that you can do, which 
you know, I, I laugh a little bit because we're, we're going to talk about this as a topic later, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So now we, we've been, we've been kind of burying this lead for like 45 solid minutes at this point. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, our main topic coming up here in just a minute. And then probably now is as good a time as any to intro it. Cause actually this is one of the games we want to talk about in reference to the main topic. We actually have long felt that themes are not represented by artwork or miniatures. Themes are actually represented by mechanisms. And we wanted to talk specifically about a bunch of games where we think that the theme of the game is really strongly supported by the rules and the mechanisms of the game so that you feel like you're doing the thing that the game is about, not just the, oh, hey, it's about stained glass windows and there are colored dice or, hey, we're... I don't know. What's a pasted on theme that you can think of right off the tip of your head? Um, We're saving the world from diseases. (laughs) Yeah. And it just, (laughs) right? And occasionally, randomly, something happens. Yeah. Carnegie is one of those that as you get into the theme of it, this was one that wasn't initially on my list of things in this theme, but actually, the more I thought about it, the more, yeah, it is pretty, the theme is pretty strongly represented. Like I said, money is very rare in this game. But basically, you have to spend your money in order to make donations. And these donations are what your victory point multipliers are at the end of the game, which kind of very directly is philanthropy. You're giving up significant resources that are hard to get in exchange for benefit. Yeah, I guess in game terms, they're, they're like contracts, right? You're, yep. you're buying, buying in-game contracts. Yeah, for sure. The game itself, actually, the mechanism of it is, has sort of a unique activation system where you've got a office building in front of you. That has four different types of departments in it. You've got HR, you've got construction, you've got research, and what's the fourth one? It's uh, uh, management or something like that. Management, yeah, you're right. Yep. And so you you lay out these departments on your on your grid board, and you actually have to physically move your workers into that department in order to activate it, and you have to pay some money to train them once they get there. So once you have a worker there, they've been trained and it's activated, then whenever somebody on their turn says that that department's going to be active, you get to do that thing based on the number of workers that you have there. Really, really interesting way of doing it. The game is ostensibly 25 rounds or 25 different actions. Um, Five game activations and a sixth end game activation, I guess there is. So when somebody makes a move and selects, they're going to pick something like HR and everybody's going to do their HR. Now, the trick is to pick something that people are not ready to do when you're ready to do it so that you are able to take bigger benefit than somebody else does on that action. But Sobi, you do all those things well, you're still not going to win the game. What's the one thing you need to do to actually be competitive? And if you don't do it, you're screwed. So missions are when you send your worker into one of the scoring, I guess you could call them scoring regions or intra-game, I guess, resource rounds, you could say. So basically, you you send these workers to the different regions of the U.S. and they go on a mission. And then during various parts of the game, you can pull those workers back if you've timed it correctly, such that you're now able to do that during one of these action selection portions of the game. So let's say someone decides, yes, I'm going to activate the East. I'm going to pull my workers out of the East and you get a lot of benefits. It's critical to time that perfectly in the game so that you get all those benefits and you get a lot of benefits from building infrastructure in those regions as well. Yeah. And this is actually where the game kind of crosses over with race and roll for the galaxy. It basically has that very direct form of interaction hardwired into the game. So You basically have to predict what somebody else is going to do as an action, get a worker out there ahead of them, 
And in fact, maybe multiple workers, if you want to do it multiple times so that when they do that thing, you can follow it and get income because you don't get a payday if you don't have anybody in that region when it gets activated. And if you don't have a payday for too long, you're not going to be very competitive in this game. Absolutely. And this is kind of why I, I think this game is pretty thematic, actually. I think it's deceptively thematic because it looks like these action selection things that you're doing are, oh, this is just a mechanism. But really what you just described is the essence of business management and capitalism, mm. <laughs> right? I mean, you are constantly trying to read what your opponents in, in the business are doing, trying to follow them quickly into those markets and set, set it up so that they can't differentiate beyond you to an extent. So... I really feel like selecting those actions and then really improving your company board in those different areas really make it so that your company is differentiated from other companies, right? I don't know if you remember the last game we played. I just hammered HR almost oh, every remember, round. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and uh, kept picking HR over and over again. And I none of us actually had anything that we could do interesting with HR. And we're like, oh, stop. <laughs> we, need, we need to construct. We need to do something else. Stop. <laughs> yeah. and, and while HR probably isn't like a phenomenal advanced strategy, that's just how tactical this game is, right? Like, you know, I saw that these buildings were available, so I knew that I wanted to zag while you guys were zigging, and I decided to buff up my HR capability of my company. So more people wanted to work for me, and uh, I ended up making more money because of it. Yep. There is, I've seen a lot of different ways to win already, which is just, again, a sign of a good, healthy game. A lot of differentiation in strategies and I think I've got half a dozen plays in it already, and man, it's been a delight every single time. So certainly thank you for introducing this one to me. Jake asked me during our last top 20 if there was anything that might crack my top 20 for last year, and uh, this one's got a pretty good shot of making it. Yeah, it's really tactical. It's it's a great game. I think Xavier Georges is... I, I probably should have put him on my Mount Rushmore, but it might still be too early for him. But I think he could get there one day. Sure. One funny little bit of trivia too, in this in the in the story at the beginning, you know, you were talking about capitalism and whatnot. That said that when he he ended up donating something around three hundred million dollars towards the building of libraries and so forth around. That's why we still have Carnegie libraries all over the place. I got to thinking that was over a hundred years ago, and as it turns out, the dollar has become worth quite a bit more in that hundred years. I went and looked at how much that $300 million is worth in today's dollars, and it was something like $420 billion or something like that. It was oh, just wow. an obscene amount of money. So, you know, you talk about rich people now. Carnegie was richer than today's dudes, even by today's standards. He was, a, he was an ultra-rich guy. So really an amazing factoid when you realize how much money he really gave away back in that period of time. Yeah, I don't know if I can say this on this podcast, Mark, but um, I don't know if you'd see any of those guys doing uh, something philanthropic like that today. It's hard to say. I mean, you do have people that are have have pledged to give away ninety percent of their stuff to you know the the Bill Gates yeah. of the world and so forth. Yeah, so good point. Good point. You know, there is definitely that group out there pledging to do that. So, like anything in the world, it's tough to paint with too broad of a brush. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So that is Carnegie. It's been a big hit in our group. Gonna let you take another swing at it, Sobi. Where is this on the mogul scale? Carnegie on the mogul scale, I think we're going to go with a 3D. So Iranian Burger Canal was a 2D. Carnegie's a 3D. A little more complex in the rule set, but still very strategically deep. So could be, I don't know, maybe a little deeper than Iranian Burger Canal, but I haven't played it. 
So I'm just guessing. Maybe maybe it's a little bit more. Am I right, Mark? Hard to tell. I think my head hurt more in Oranian Burger <laughs> Canal. I really did. I maybe it was just because I wasn't expecting to be so mentally challenged in it. But my head really hurt in Oranian Burger Canal. It was okay. a lot of head scratching and gnashing of gums while that one was getting played. Yeah, I'll I'll take it. I, I still got to play it. I, that that looks like an awesome game. Carnegie, highly rec. Carnegie, Car- Carnegie, highly Carnegie. recommended. Awesome production, kind of ticks all the boxes. Yeah, if you can find the deluxe edition, I think which was um, Quinet Games did the deluxe. That's probably the one to get. Even the basic one. I mean, the, with those multi-layer boards with the little slide-out tech thermometer things. Oh yeah, Pegasus Spiel does a great job. Beautiful. I think uh, I think their production's phenomenal in general. So you can't go wrong either way. Definitely get Carnegie. Sounds good. And also, boy, in the highly thematic and also amazing production camp, we've been playing another new game here recently the past couple of weeks, a game which I think each time we've played, the difference of victory has been less than 5%. Absolutely. And also, I have not yet won it. <laughs> Nor have I. But I think I, I made a pretty good run at it. I mean, I was only three points away from winning it last time. Of course, you were only four points away from winning and you were in last place. <laughs> uh, what game are we talking about? This is Union Stockyards by Dwayne Wolf. Um, so this is, I believe, independently published. So it says it's Maldito Games or Solid Rock Games. This was a Kickstarter recently that uh, just delivered within the past few months. And uh, for being uh, what appears to be a you know, first-time independent release, first-time design, I am amazed at the production of this game and, and, oh, the, it's beautiful. and the development. So, yeah. Do you remember what, what I said like five minutes into you teaching me the rules? What? You know, you're into the rules and you're kind of explaining it. You're starting explaining the action spaces. I immediately went, oh, I think I pretty much get it. The iconography is really good in this game. Oh, yeah, for sure. The development that went into this is really uh, impressive. I mean, for a lot of the Kickstarters today, you, you don't see that premium of a development job, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of these are, you know, publishers that are just looking to quickly release a game, you know, get some funding and go. But uh, these guys did a phenomenal job with their process. I was really impressed. Yeah, really high level of polish on this game. So, uh, what it is, is it's a game that's about the meatpacking industry in Chicago. You're, each of you are playing like Swift or Armor or Harmel or one of those meatpacking companies. And it's sort of trying to th- very thematically bring up both the mood and the era of what it was like in that period of time, all the way down from the, hey, we got to manage the market and the value of the livestock to make money to we have to build out our factory all the way down to what are the prevailing labor conditions that are influencing that? What are the political parties right now that are influencing the labor market and so forth? So, Sobi, you had this on your list of games that are thematic through mechanisms. Tell us why. So I think it's really hard to make a truly thematic Euro game. And this is a thematic worker placement game. And One of the reasons why it's thematic is that your workers can go on strike, which is pretty freaking cool. And I know that it's been done before. What was that game we were just talking about, Mark? Was uh, no, not Carnegie. The uh, uh, Arkwright. Arkwright, sure. Yep, 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 (laughs) yep. That's right. That's the one. All right. Yep. So you know, Arkwright's done this before. That said, Union Stockyards is. You know, it seems like a, a bit of a spiritual successor, but very streamlined, right? You, you have very, very simple actions you can do. You're sending your workers out to go slaughter meat, right? 
and mm-hmm. then you then you sell that meat and you can sell that meat based on how much it's worth based on the marketing you've done for your company with your other workers by the way mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh and then uh you know you have different pricing based on the buildings that you've built in the stockyards right so you those buildings add value to your operations so maybe you have a glue works that allows you to use different parts of the animal and uh you know you're able to to sell them at a higher price, right? Everything about the game is thematic, even though you're just taking these meeples and putting them on spaces on the board. There's a reason you're doing everything, and it affects that uh, that value equation of the meat. Well, and furthermore, too, I think I underappreciate a game that has some random event cards that come up that don't warp the game crazily, not to like a uh, dominant species level. But just something that adds a little bit of uniqueness to every play of the game and and injects a little bit of flavor into it. There's a a series of year cards, basically, that, you know, at the start of every round, which is a year or something like that, you flip one over and some historical event happens like, uh, I don't know, the Great Stockyard Fire or something like that. When the fire happens, all the workers decide that the working conditions are kind of crappy. You know, it ups the labor tensions, making it more likely that they go on strike, which unilaterally influences the flow of the game for everybody. Now. Somebody has to take the hit and release release the labor tensions or everybody has to manage a slowdown of the game as a result of that. And I think that's just a cool addition to the game. Yeah, it's very uh, like we're talking about with Carnegie. It's very, very capitalistic, right? You're, you know, you're Mm -hmm. looking at you're looking at, uh, you know, how to treat your workers such that you can make enough money, but don't treat them too well. (laughs) Right. Right. Because there, there really is no financial incentive to treat them too well. Um, if you have zero unhappiness and your labor's union is completely happy, you probably are not doing enough to make money or to score points at the end of the game. Right. And you are definitely losing. Right. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a that's a great example of uh, of mechanics, um, you know, evolving a, a theme and telling a telling a story, too. Right. This game is bonkers tight. Uh, I think it's maybe one of the tightest games I've seen in quite a while. Yeah, I've now played it twice with you. I know the last game that we played, there was literally 59 to 58 to 57 to 55. So it wasn't, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's hard to get much tighter than that. The play before that was not quite as tight, but it was still pretty darn tight. The play before that was uh, 41 to 37 to 36 to 34 to 34. So in all cases, just a point here and a point there means everything in this game. Yeah, it's all about action economy. Like you could tell in game when you're falling behind, you're like, oh, that turn was just not good enough, right? Nope. Or, or I have too much free space on my map. Oh, no. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I had to do an action that basically was just a filler action or I had to do an action that netted me only one dollar or something like that. Oh, I just fell way behind in this game. <laughs> And you can trace it back. So anyway, I think we, you know, we talked about this one and the rules are pretty easy to understand. It's really a well-written rule book. The iconography is great. So therefore, you know, ostensibly it's a three C it's a midway Euro, but I think it, uh, it, it plays short as they say in golf parlance, we're going to guess, call it a 2.5 C game time, actually short once, you know, you get people that know how to play this one 90 minute play, maybe. Right. I think if you keep the AP down, you could definitely finish this in 60 or sub 60. Yeah. So quick play, beautiful production. Highly recommended Union Stockyard. If you can find a copy of it, check it out for sure. Why don't you tell me about another one of the games you've got on our list of uh, implementing themes through mechanism, Sobi, and sell me on it. 
Sure. Um, so let's start with one I mentioned earlier. That's going to be PAX Renaissance by Phil Eklund. Uh, okay. That's uh, in a second edition published by Ion Games, I want to say. This is a game where you are each playing as bankers in the uh, late Renaissance period. And if you've done any research at all about this era and the banks that were evolving during the time, this is some of the most like just stark disparity of wealth in, in history, right? I mean, you have mm-hmm. families like the Fuggers, right? Where it's What'd you call the them? absolute... Ri- <laughs> it, well, so the Fuggers were at like the absolute like richest family during this time in, in history, right? Like comparing to modern days. So basically, Pax Renaissance is about being a banker and you are influencing the world around you with your money and you're fighting mm-hmm. other bankers for that influence. So you have a, a market kind of like Pax Pamir, if you've, any of you have played Pax Pamir. And then that market actually has uh, two different regional areas that allow you to basically go on trade fairs through those, those major zones on the map, netting you, you cash, allowing you to levy troops in different countries, and then influence the politics between these countries. So it is just such a messy and beautiful game. I absolutely love Pax Renaissance. And that market is really a hallmark of the whole of the Pax game, right? If you look at it, Perfuriana has that market in it and and all of them that I've seen so far. That is kind of the hallmark of the Pax system, correct? Yeah, the market is very very much so um, one of the definitions of a Pax style game is having some kind of market. The reason the market here is different is that there is a card zero that you cannot buy. So you, you cannot buy anything for zero coins in this game. You must always pay. <laughs> okay. And then you basically collect those coins on the zero space to, to run these trade fair, these global trade fairs, right? Coming from China or coming from different parts of the world where you're buying resources and trading them into Europe. So I have that second edition on the shelf and I have not ever played it before. So I am looking forward to you teaching me because it's, it's sort of, it's been on my list of ones to learn. And uh, I'm looking forward to experiment with that because, like I said, I'm a big fan of Pax Perfuriana. And uh, just everybody says, oh, the best Pax is Pax Renaissance. So, yeah, I think it is. I know that uh, Pamir is really well regarded, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it is, like I said, it is way easier to teach, (laughs) just like infinitely uh, uh, easier to teach. But that said, once you learn Renaissance, the stories are just amazing. Like just one example, I purchased a card that I really wanted because it would disrupt this region, right? Mm -hmm. So basically it happened to be Vlad the Impaler's brother. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So so basically Vlad the Impaler's brother. Gary. yeah, Gary, sure. Gary, the, <laughs> Gary, Gary, the the non impaler. I don't know. So, so he, uh, Gary, the tickler. <laughs> oh, man. So he, you know, he parlays with uh, the the Muslim empire nearby, and uh, basically chases out Vlad from power in Hungary. Okay, and Hungary becomes a Muslim state. That is so weird and just, <laughs> just hilarious to unpack, right? Just from a historical perspective. So <laughs> the game just constantly does makes these like challenging scenarios that I just really love to explore and think about. Awesome. So my first choice is actually one that is also a card game. It's far simpler than Pax Renaissance. It comes in a small box and it's actually a 2023 release. That is Cat in the Box. <laughs> A game based on the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So this is a very deep thing in physics about mathematical uncertainty and not being able to predict at any time where an electron is in what 
sphere an electron is in uh, in the orbits of an atom and so forth. And it, it's basically a thought exercise around if a cat is in a box and opening it delivers poison or something like that. I'm paraphrasing like a mad dog right now, but basically... <laughs> The cat is in an undetermined state and the act of opening it may cause it to be either alive or dead. So like, does the observation of it affect what the state it's actually in? in? So, oh man, any of you that actually studied this just went, yeah, you slaughtered it and we're going to roll with it. But that's basically the important part is that it's things are nebulous until they're declared is really the theme that's carried forward in a cat in the box. It's a trick taker where all the cards are black and white. And you have to follow suit in it. Well, how do you follow suit in something that's only black and white? Well, easy. You just declare what it is. So we played a red nine. Oh, I play my eight. It's a red eight. Sure. And then I mark off on my on the card that a red eight has been used. So nobody else can play a red eight because there really only is one. And by the way, if you were still holding an eight in your hand, well, guess what? It's not a red eight anymore. It must be a blue eight, maybe. Problem happens is that there's five of every card and there's only four colors. So eventually what's going to happen is is you might get stuck having to play a card that doesn't exist anymore. And it's like, well, wait a minute, there can't be another red eight because that already got played. So, and there can't be a blue eight, a green eight or a yellow eight, but I have to play my eight right now. So I'm going to cause a paradox, which causes me to go with negative points. How somebody was able to take that Heisenberg uncertainty principle and turn it into a trick-taking game, yet make it still feel like that thought experiment, I I think is absolute genius. Yeah, this is a really challenging thing to do, by the way. I think just from a design perspective, to, to make a trick-taking game that has just got some very innovative mechanisms and actually make it feel thematic in any way, right? And I, I can't uh, give this designer enough credit uh, for, for achieving that. That's just a phenomenal feat. I was a big fan of Cat in the Box, and uh, it is definitely a filler that we will be playing at the end of uh, the evening many times in the future. The area enclosure or area control puzzle on there also influences the you know the actual uh, paradox, right? Because you're going to want to have your pieces next to each other to score these nice bingos, right? But mm-hmm. if you do that, then you're you know kind of limiting your ability to react to the paradox at the end of the round. It's a genius, and I think it does a great job of emphasizing the theme in the mechanisms of the game. By the way, I just got another card trick taker that I think is going to fit into a future version of this one. My copy of Tall Tales showed up today. You know anything about this? I do not. The byline is collect the best hand of outsized stories in this recursive trick-taking game. Nice. That sounds good. I, I'm down for pretty much any trick-taking game. So I, yep. I grew up with I grew up with them. I just love trick-taking. And I, I think that you're starting to see more and more trick-taking combined with other things as yep. like an innovative set of mechanisms, right? I'm excited. I mean, you see Cole Worley, right, with ARCs coming out soon. The hit Kickstarter last year, I want to say. Definitely lots of trick-taking going on. Going on. Uh, Brian Baru, mm-hmm. kind of trick-taking adjacent, right? More hand management, but feels a bit like a trick-taker. Lots of cool stuff coming out with trick-taking. So let's shift gears. Um, let's go with what I've been playing a decent amount lately, which is hard to do with this game because it's so big. But let's uh, talk about Europa Universalis, the price of power. <laughs> Goodness sakes. Okay. <laughs> so this is based off of the popular uh, you know, PC game Euro- series, Europa Universalis. Huge following, lots of games over the years. 
Uh, it's a massive simulation of European politics and war and subterfuge during uh, the Renaissance and onward. So as a board game, Europa Universalis has a lot of rules. <laughs> this, this rule book is mm -hmm. thick. And what we call in wargaming, there is a lot of chrome as well. That said, when you play the game, it actually feels like you are a Renaissance monarch trying to pull your your uh, you know your nation out of uh, you know the the medieval times and progress it through the, the Renaissance and into the age of exploration and so on. Everything you do in the game is thematic. There are mechanisms for political marriages, for political influence, the, the way the influence spreads, the way that you recruit, uh, you know, some of the, some of your leaders into your nation in order to provide you with like uh, administrative capability and all of these things. It's just a very complex confluence of just so many mechanisms, and I love it. I'm not going to recommend it to 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 you, Mark. <laughs> I don't I don't know if you'll like it at all. <laughs> but uh, if you are into extremely complex, I guess, borderline lifestyle games, Europa Universalis Price of Power is definitely something to check out. Cool. My choice is also going to be about European power and politics. I'm going to go with game number one on Board Game Geek. This is Demacher, uh, the yeah. classic game about German elections. Everything about this game is thematic. You start with four different regions, and what you have to do is you have to win elections over there. So what you do is throw rallies to gain influence in that area, and then every round you have to place influence in each different regions to try to influence that. Um, you're going to try to align your party's platforms with the prevailing attitudes of that region. So if they're really for green agendas then and you're anti-green, well, now suddenly you might want to readjust to being pro-green so that you can win more votes. And then, like, what's your attitude on transportation or surveillance or some of these other things? For every election, you're trying to align your party's politics as closely as possible just in time for the election, whether you're actually about that or not. doesn't matter. You're trying to align it for the election. And then polls are going to come out, and that poll may say great things about you, which gives you more votes, or bad things about you, which gives you less votes. But you can buy that poll, and you can either publish it, or you can snuff it, if it doesn't say good things about you. And then there's a whole round of political dirty tricks, too, where you can come in and basically send your backroom operatives in there to go in and do little dirty tricks in that region to say bad things about your opponents so that they lose influence and you gain votes. And then ultimately, those votes turn into both victory points and uh, increased donations that allow you to do more of those things for the next region. Ah, crazy game. <laughs> Who would have thought a game about German elections would be so darn good? You've never played this one, right? I have not. Uh, it's definitely on my list, and I'd love to table it sometime. There's certainly some random components of it that pop up that you're just like, oh, I just got completely hosed by the by the poll that came up this turn. But there's definitely ways to mitigate that and plan ahead and be able to save enough money where you can just auction and buy it so that you don't care. Every step of this game is thematic. In fact, a lot of times it hits a little too close to home. Mm. Yeah, some of the things you said made me think of uh, a certain other country's political process. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You, you know, you're like, is this Germany or is this? <laughs> it feels a lot like home. <laughs> So that's uh, Demacher, the game going all the way back to 1986. Of course, I've got the second edition one, and it's beautifully produced by Karl-Heinz Schmiel. What's next on your list, Sobi? 
Let's go with something different uh, from a historical game. I'm going to talk a little bit about Heat, Pedal to the Metal. This doesn't quite sound like a game that is technically up my alley, but I picked up Heat. I read about it. It looked super interesting and compelling. I, I'd always wanted to try uh, the game that the, the designers made previously on cycling. Um, Reifenbreite? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't think that was it. Which, by the way, is a formal Spiritus Yaris winner about cycling. <laughs> you are thinking of... Flamrouge. Flamrouge. Yeah, that's the one. So I'm picking Heat. Heat is a very thematic game for what, it, what, it's, what it's actually doing from a mechanics perspective. I feel like the... Just a f having a few cards in your hand, a few cards in your deck, and then this heat mechanism from the engine that you're playing with to execute these advanced maneuvers as you try to pass your opponents and get first place, obviously, or get first place by the most uh, as compared to everyone else. So it is a wild hand management game. It is very challenging. You can really jam yourself up in this game very mm -hmm. badly <laughs> if you're not uh, counting your deck, right? And it has the, it really has the stress of like car racing for me. I really never thought I would like a racing game. And this is the first one that I've ever enjoyed. I know we talked about a lot of other racing games and trying some of them out and I'd be happy to do that. But I think Heat really like got my creative juices flowing too for applying the system to like air combat or any like number of like, you know, exciting like tactical things, right? Uh, Heat Pedal of the Metal has gotten tons and tons of accolades. Uh, it was out of print immediately on its first print run. I think it's back now. So, you know, definitely go get heat pedal to the metal. I played this once with you. I was excited to try it. Uh, I had a good time of it, but I like race games. You know, it's it's a nice change of pace I, for the, all the reasons you talked about. There is stress around trying to go for the maximum that you can without blowing up. Functionally, right? I mean, it, I'm amazed how people will love to play Quacks of Quedlinburg, yet wouldn't touch heat with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> Guess what? It's almost the same game. Yeah, very similar. That that is a very good <laughs> that is a very good comparison, Mark. I, I agree with you. And yet for some reason people see a race game and they're like, ugh, no, I don't want to play that at all. But it's very much a manager bag or your hand, push your luck to go around and get the maximum results that you can. And you know what? That's a great mechanism and it's a lot of stress. And, you know, as much as I love Uber Rosenberg, can't say that I've done a lot of high fives around a move at a route. You know, we're all cheering and, you know, <laughs> high fiving when you don't crash and whatnot. That doesn't happen when you're farming. Yep. 100%. Yeah. It's just an exciting game. And I think that that is a perfect example of what we're talking about. Great choice there. I'm going to talk about a game that heat is a very central mechanism to also. I love these transitions. <laughs> I'm talking about the really difficult indie produced game called Leaving Earth. And I understand you've never played this one, right, Sobi? No, I've wanted to buy it. It's a little spendy, but it is, you know, independently produced and basically printed to order, I think. So, yep. Um, but it looks super interesting and being an aerospace engineer and just loving my space courses like this seems like it'd be something I'd, I'd enjoy. So I think I inadvertently have two copies on order right now because I bought a copy for Johnny Mac for Christmas last year. Yes, it's almost August. I still haven't gotten it. And I thought my order got screwed up. So I ordered a second order. So I might be getting two copies. So if <laughs> nice. I do get two copies eventually showing up, your name's on copy number two. Awesome. This is a game about the space race. This is a game about trying to develop the technology so that you can go farther and farther out into the solar system 
to do a lot of the things that we did. Like you're trying to get a man in orbit. You're trying to get to the moon. You're trying to get to a man, man to the moon and back. Hopefully you're trying to get a man to Mars. You're trying to get a man to Jupiter or there's all these different missions that you're trying to do. And you're trying to develop the technology to do this can be played brilliantly in solitaire mode or can be played multiplayer. When you play it multiplayer, it takes on a weird different angle where there's actually becomes a lot of negotiation in it and a lot of interaction around um, trying to buy technology off somebody else. Because that is one of the things, somebody else develops the technology and perfects it. Well, rather than spending the turns to do it, you can just buy it from them. Or they may not want to sell it. Or they may want a lot of money for it. How bad do you want it? The reason I think it's so thematic is that there's this thing called the rocket equation. And the rocket equation basically has to do with how much energy and how much speed do you have to create in order to successfully get to a certain orbit. And it's not a linear equation in that you can't just say, okay, if I've got a million pound rocket, then I need this much thrust. Whereas something that's half as much only might take a quarter of the amount of thrust. So that's the reason that this concept of single stage to orbit just doesn't work. You can't just take a rocket and go to orbit. You have to have multiple stages because what happens is when you lose a whole bunch of weight, then suddenly you need a lot less thrust in order to keep getting up to speed in that one. And the way that this works, there's a mathematical equation around the amount of thrust that something has, the amount of weighs, and how far you need to get that very, very accurately represents that rocket equation. So you can do it with one giant rocket, yet that's going to be really expensive and overkill. Or you just have two small rockets staged. I shoot the first rocket, then I stage it to the second rocket, and then I get I achieve the same result much cheaper. And it's really cool how close it is to real life. And my son, I think this is where he fell in love with the idea of being an aerospace engineer by, you know, working out the equations on how that rocket equation works. So that's why my choice for this list is 2015's independent release by Joseph Fatula and the Luminaris Group's Leaving Earth. What's next, Sobi? All right. Um, I don't think I can ever make a transition as good as yours, Mark, but... <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, let's get back down to earth, though, and uh, go with uh, Wars of Religion. <laughs> so, okay, I'm already trying to think how I'm going to follow this one up. Uh, hmm. All right. I had a few um, so, minutes to work on it, so go for it. <laughs> so Wars of Religion um, is a, a release from 2022, and this is by uh, Jerome Lefranc um, and published by Fellowship of Simulations out of France. So Fellowship of Simulations does not uh, distribute in the United States. So I got this through Noble Knight Games uh, secondhand, or maybe they bought it from them. I'm, I'm not quite sure. Previously, Fellowship of Simulations did uh, another game that was pretty well regarded by Wargamers uh, called uh, Verdun uh, Steel Inferno. So it was about the Battle of Verdun and uh, World War One. So I was super excited for this release coming off of this like game with phenomenal art, uh, Verdun, and plenty of accolades and unique gameplay. Uh, Wars of Religion, France, 1562 to 1598, is exactly about the time period that it says in the title of the game. Ooh, go figure. <laughs> so it's about the French Civil War at the time between the uh, the royals, uh, the Huguenots, so the Protestant Huguenots, and then the Ultra Catholic League, which is you know forging which are forging alliances all across the board, all across Europe and basically trying to use their armies to take over territory. Now this game is super unique because 
the the alliances in the game shift. And actually, yes, there are alliances, even though there's only one winner at the end of the game. So in the beginning of the game, the ultra Catholics and the Royals are allied, right? They're friends. I guess you could call it frenemies in this game because you don't want to do anything that benefits your allies so much that they could win the game. And then halfway through the game, as, as is the history, the Huguenots become allies to the royalists. So basically the ultra Catholics become the third party that uh, they're both trying to fight against. So Wars of Religion really has some interesting mechanisms with the card that are riffs on a standard card-driven game system, but they they really uh, emphasize the the leaders at the time and the people that were that were in these conflicts and how they could die uh, at the single drop of a die of a die. <laughs> So there's a lot of death in this game. So much death, which is very thematic for the period. So, And I think of card-driven games as being um, very thematic through their mechanisms, right? I mean, you're playing a card, which isn't super thematic, but it has you do something that very closely maps out to a historical event. Is that uh, like, you know, hey, this thing happened and, you know, the conquest of Turkey. So now I'm going to put a whole bunch of pieces in Turkey and move them someplace else. Uh, is that the type of thematic mechanism you're referring to here? So it's not in the same realm as a standard CDG, right? So there are some kind of light events that are happening, mm-hmm. you know, usually regarding like silly things like taxes. <laughs> okay. So a lot of the narrative comes from like having these characters in the game that are actually can become pieces on the board that are moving these armies around and or are writing treatises. Right. So that's a huge mechanism in the game are, you know, religious leaders writing treatises to try and sway public opinion. So you are actually doing things in the game with these with these characters that get you points. Right. As opposed to, you know, flipping an event and the event happens. Right. So that's one cool thing that I think is that this game does that uh, is a little unique from a lot of card driven games. That said, I do want to caveat this. This game is very poorly produced. It is a travesty. (laughs) It is, it, is, it is very frustrating to me that this game could have been easily an 8 or 9 out of 10 if it would have been developed a little better and produced much better. Parts of my board were falling apart. I got like three dice in the game when you need like, you know, a fistful sometimes. Oh. <laughs> so not much of the production decisions made sense. And the rulebook is pretty bad. My choice is The Gallerist by Vito Lacerda. Is there anything better than Eagle Griffin's production of the Vito Lacerda games? I don't think so. Uh, they're just beautiful. I mean, they, they also did uh, Age of Steam too, right? Um, they did, that, yeah. That deluxe line is is, uh, is incredible and it's definitely like, it, you know, the industry standard for deluxified versions. Absolutely. So a lot of times Vito Lacerda games are accused or compared to, accused is probably the wrong the wrong take on it, but of being sim- more simulation than game. And the reason for that is because a lot of those mechanisms that he put in there are directly based off of what you're doing in the game. And the gallerist, I feel, upholds that very strongly. What you're doing is you're an art promoter, and what you're trying to do is you're trying to discover and develop new artists. So you make investments in these artists. And then over time, you're trying to promote them as well. And you're trying to get them to create the best pieces of art that you can, that you can later on sell off for a massive amount of profit and or display inside your gallery to reach a bunch of end game goals. There's lots of mechanisms in this game. Every Vito Lacerda game has lots of mechanisms. 
But I think this one strikes the sweet spot of acceptable for a midway Euro player. And everything that you do, you feel like, yes, I'm trying to discover artists and grow them and promote them and display their art so that I can auction them and make money. Beautiful game. And that's why this is my favorite Vita Lacerda game, because it is so darn thematic. It is an excellent one. And I'm going to have to bring up uh, Lisboa as well in the same uh, conversation here, uh, because I think uh, Lisboa is probably Lacerda's one of his three most thematic games. And I, I put The Gallerist in there as well as Kanban EV, or I guess you could say Kanban Base Edition. Sure. Anyway, Lisboa is a great game. You are trying to help uh, recover uh, Lisbon, Portugal, from um, a, a period in time where there were three major disasters, basically a tsunami, earthquake, and fires, basically all at the same time in the city. And you're playing as this like uh, capitalist uh, merchant, right? And mm-hmm. you don't have a heck of a lot of power in, in this era in Portugal. But... Thankfully, all of these terrible things happen. So now you can levy your services for the crown, right? So you can go clean up rubble from the city, build new buildings, and you can get wigs. That's what you want. You want a good wig. (laughs) (laughs) So you basically uh, get wigs in order to win the game. Wigs are victory points. Wigs are victory points because... You know, you would want to amass a wig, basically, in order to uh, have political power in this era. And this is a time when you could buy that favor from the crown by providing these services. The game's all about converting your hard work and labor of your crews, uh, shipping goods, rebuilding buildings, um, and then just constantly hitting the king for more and more and more, right? And then that is the uh, your your end game goal is to, to buy that political favor. Well, and I, I love how the three people that you can go visit and have them do favors for you and so forth, each have their kind of own additional agendas. Like one of them want, doesn't want the church to become too powerful. <laughs> yep, you that's know? a good point. That's a fun little uh, thematic thing. Another little thematic thing in there is that To rebuild the city, you have to create buildings, and that's one of the main scoring areas in there. And in order to rebuild those buildings, you have to collect rubble from the disaster, because in real life, those buildings were actually, they they, they had a construction technique where they took the rubble and basically kind of made a uh, wall filler out of it and plaster out of it. So literally the foundations of these new buildings were out of the rubble of the old buildings that were destroyed in the disasters. So you accumulate rubble in the game and build buildings out of them. And I I think that's an amazing nod too to the historical realities of rebuilding Lisbon, Portugal. Yeah. And I mean, that said, there are some kind of silly things in here and silly tracks that are a little, little abstracted, (laughs) but like like the church rondel. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But I I still think I really feel like I'm a merchant in the period when I play this, unlike uh, many of the other themeless euros that that we've, uh, we've played or chatted about. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, another game I look forward to playing in a couple of weeks at the muster. Yes, absolutely. Oh, uh, we were going to play Vinos at the muster. Uh, yeah, but if, you know, we found our way into Lisboa, too, this probably needs to be like four days long, doesn't it? Yeah, I think we need more time to play more games. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, not always the case. So next up on my list is about building things as well. And this is about building a track up a mountainside. It's a train game. We never talk about train games enough. So we're going to talk about one called Snowdonia. Snowdonia is a, you know, it's a weird game as train games go. It's a pure Euro. It's not an economic game. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to literally build up the mountainside. You're trying to clear rubble 
also thematic right along with Lisboa. <laughs> you clear the rubble, you, you, uh, you build tra- uh, rails, you build stations, and eventually the game ends when you make your way all the way to the peak of Mount Snowden or whatever the long Welsh name that's unpronounceable uh, it actually is. And one of the neat mechanisms inside of it is that the weather changes because it's Wales and the weather sometimes really sucks and nobody gets any work done and they rather would just go to the bar and hang out instead. So like if it's foggy out, then your work rate goes down. If it's sunny, your work rate goes up and that really can hose you. There are certain events that happen throughout the course of the game. Once again, that are determined by random bag draw, but you know, one of those events is essentially a train rusting event that you have to pay some coal to keep your trains up to date. Otherwise, you lose that hard-earned train, which loses you an extra worker throughout the game. As if the base game isn't thematic enough, this is a definitive edition like Castles of Burgundy, where the main box has dozens, if not hundreds, of expansions inside of it. Because there was a lot of weird, like, one-off single-card expansions that were put into magazines for this game. This box attempted to put them all in there, and some of them are literally as weird as um, like a Civil War simulation. So they've turned it into like a war game Civil War simulation with this engine. Uh, so I know. So one of them's a King Arthur theme thing. Another one is like going up, building a railroad up Mount Everest. So you have to accumulate oxygen. A lot of just very unique variants on the game. They're all included in that box and are added thematic mechanism to warp it in to make you think you're playing that thing. So anyway, that's the giant box of Snowdonia, which needs to get played more. Yeah, I haven't played it, but your description kind of makes me think of Russian railroads a little bit, you know, with the whole worker placement thing. Mm -hmm. So that's another one that uh, we need to table as well. Uh, So the next one I'm going to mention here is let's go with uh, War of the Ring, the card game. So War of the Ring is a pretty famous board game, two players, and I guess you could play it with four if you really wanted to, but I don't think many people actually do that. Uh, But War of the Ring, the the card game, takes that War of the Ring big box experience and tries to distill it down to a card game. And it is a two or four player game. Uh, There are rules for uh, three players as well, but honestly, I don't know if I'd ever play this uh, anything but four player. It's just so good that way. Each of the factions is asymmetric. So you each get a deck of cards. There are two free people's decks. There are two uh, shadow decks. So one with the uh, Mordor and then the other with uh, several of the other uh, factions presented. And then you basically go through this order of play where you reveal an active event or battlefield where one side is a defender and the other side is an attacker and then you reveal a plot uh, line which is called the path right the path of the ring where you know frodo takes the ring and wants to throw it in mount doom eventually so the free peoples are trying to control these paths with their cards and yield victory points while the shadow players are trying to keep them from doing that and apply corruption to these cards, which is such a cool uh, thing to call a resource, right? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to put corruption on your card. That's just, I love that. <laughs> um, the other part of this game are the battlefields and armies and leaders. So lots of thematic things are going on. You're putting things into your tableau. You're putting them onto these battlefields or on to the path you're even 
impacting your partner's stuff too, right? So as the Elvish faction, you might be you know trying to equip hobbits with uh, various like cool Elvish weapons or uh, armor or so on in order to to make them more effective at what they're doing. So there's a bit of a bit of a cooperative thing going on between you, and you kind of have to try reading what your partner is doing, right? It kind of makes me feel like a trick-taking game, to be honest. <laughs> but anyway, the game takes the Lord of the Rings experience, and Ian Brody, Ian Brody does a great job at putting it into this really small box. Uh, and it really reminds me of his game's Quartermaster General, rather than hmm. the, the War of the Ring big box game, to be honest. So I was actually going to go with Pax Mordor. Pax Mordor. <laughs> That would, I would play that game 100%. That sounds really cool. That seems like something that needs to happen. Yeah, I think so. Don't tell uh, Fantasy Flight about this one. Pretty soon we're getting like Pax Naboo. <laughs> um, I think that there's a Pax Expanse game. It's like a reskin of uh, Pax Pamir. Oh, yeah. So you yeah, can I, actually go print it if you want. It's a that would be super like, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I was going with the Jar Jar Binks variant on it, but uh <laughs> Yikes. Okay. All good things must come to an end. And I'm going to wrap this one up with one last choice here. My last choice is also a card game. And this is probably the smallest of all these games because the base version of it is just a single deck. I'm going with the Carl Chuddick classic Innovation. Innovation is a highly swingy, highly chaotic card game that involves, you know, playing cards and doing actions on them. Why do I think this is thematic? Well, because the card, that game is made up of a large variety of different cards, all which are unique in the deck, and all which have a power that is thematic to what it is. So, like, for example, if your power is physics that you're putting out there, your new innovation, well, what happens in physics is you draw a bunch of cards, and if two of them are the same, then you th- discard your entire hand, meaning that you just caused a chain react- <laughs> an atomic chain reaction that went bad. There is like alchemy that if you have a good draw, basically, then you actually create essentially gold out of crap cards. So all of these things, you know, some of them are a stretch, right? I mean, sailing basically just allows you to explore more. Well, and as it turns out, exploring is just drawing another card. Hey, and we got new innovations from doing that. So <laughs> even the mundane cards, you, you can draw a, a mental line to what they're trying to represent. And I appreciate the fact that they took what's a fairly simple mechanism and set of symbols and managed to tie out what the card does to what that power actually is. That's funny. Exploring, you know, it's really just colonialism. <laughs> they, should just, they should have just called it colonialism. <laughs> yep. Go out and get stuff. You have one more for us, Sobi? Yeah, sure. So my last game here, and I mentioned uh, the GMT coin series a little bit earlier. So this is brand new from from GMT. This game is People Power. So People Power is uh, a intro level coin game, which that sounds daunting probably. because <laughs> It the, does, yep. <laughs> the GMT coin series is well known for being um, a little more complex uh, than most games, but it is a, you know, relatively simulationist in, uh, in, its, in its goals here. So People Power is about the insurgency in the Philippines between 1981 and 1986. So ending in the presidency of, or ending with the presidency of uh, Ferdinand Marcos. So basically, you know, Marcos was uh, democratically elected. And this is about actually all of the insurgency um, between labor and between uh, peaceful resistance, as well as the government during that time. So pretty much everything in a coin game is a thematic mechanism. That's really 
you know the goal of uh mm -hmm. you know of the designers with this series and basically uh you know from finding insurgents on the map right you have to search for them you pick a cylinder up and you flip it over right you can't necessarily affect that cylinder unless you find it right if you know there's a uh insurgent base somewhere well that's great but you can't really see it unless you uncover all of those insurgents in that area, right? Otherwise, they're going to move it, and it's going to be harder for you to find as the government or as you know one of the other competing uh, entities. So this is a you know a great study on on the time. Uh, it it really emphasizes the uh, peaceful non uh, peaceful resistance uh, of one of the factions at the time, as well as the uh, the NPA and their more violent tendencies, um, and it kind of uh, juxtaposes those together uh, against their common enemy of the government. Well, there are their common enemy is also themselves, right? There's only one winner in the game, so really interesting way to pit these factions against each other while they're you know basically frenemies against the government most of the gmt coin games do things like this um, i think people power does it in a nice streamlined way mm -hmm. um, and they add some great changes to the system that i'll you know really make it a uh, kind of an enabler for someone that's coming from heavy games or heavy euros and is looking for something a little more thematic but also related to those games so the one question I've got, given that it was the, dealing with the election of Ferdinand Marcos, if the victory point in Lisboa is Whigs, is it shoes in the people power? Is it what? Sorry. Is it shoes in people power? Shoes? <laughs> what? I have no idea, Mark. <laughs> what, is, what is that a reference to? Oh, Amelda Marcos at their overthrow had like thousands of pairs of shoes, and it was oh, kind of one of those okay. symbols of government access. <laughs> Oh my goodness, I did not even know this. Yeah, <laughs> I'm oh gonna, yeah. I'm going to look this up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I might be misremembering that one, but uh, Imelda Marcos. Yeah, like literally the first thing that comes up in my Google autocomplete <laughs> is Imelda Marcos shoes. And there are pictures oh. of her closets with thousands of pairs of shoes up there. Oh man. 3,000 pairs. <laughs> this is hilarious. I need to read more about this, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I'm just saying if it's if it's wigs in Lisboa, it should be shoes in people power. That's a good point. I I'm gonna mention this to the to, to the uh, developer. It, it was a symbol of outrage for the people after the fact yeah. that you know that's the excesses that the uh, the leadership was living under, while everybody else in the country kind of had a state of poverty going on. Yeah, absolutely. No, we had a uh, we had a good intro game the other week when we played this, and I'm excited to get it back to the table. But just the you know the action programming of deciding whether or not to couple your actions with the government or with your frenemy really tough decisions. And you know there are definitely ways to do a lot worse in this game by making the wrong decision. So I definitely recommend giving it a try if you if you're interested in coin. Awesome. Well, hey, it's been a bit of a supersized episode this time. I mean, uh, probably going to clock out about an hour and 45 minutes by the time it's all said and done. And you, the listeners, are the beneficiaries of all that. Been a minute since we've done an episode and just had a ton of things to catch up. And hey, we wanted to make sure and give Sobe a good, solid launching into the mogul world. So you have a good time, Sobe? You ready to do this again sometime? Yeah, absolutely. I just got to keep playing enough games. <laughs> I don't know if I'll have this much content next time, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can deep dive a little bit more on a few less things. So, <laughs> Sounds good. That was great. Well, hey, for the Gaming Moguls, I'm Mark. And I'm Sobi. 
Thanks, everybody, and good night. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.